Section 9 of Elizabethan Demonology by Thomas Alfred Spaulding. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eva Davis. Assuming, therefore, that the witch nature of the sisters is conclusively proved, it now becomes necessary to support the assertion previously made that good reason can be shown why Shakespeare should have elected to represent witches rather than norns. It is impossible to read Macbeth without noticing the prominence given to the belief that witches had the power of creating storms and other atmospheric disturbances, and that they delighted in so doing. The sisters elect to meet in thunder, lightning, or rain. To them fair is foul, and foul is fair, as they hover through the fog and filthy air. The whole of the earlier part of the third scene of the first act is one blast of tempest with its attendant devastation they can loose and bind the winds cause vessels to be tempest-tossed at sea and mutilate wrecked bodies they describe themselves as posters of the sea and land the heath they meet upon is blasted and they vanish as breath into the wind macbeth conjures them to answer his questions thus though you untie the winds and let them fight against the churches though the yesty waves confound and swallow navigation up though bladed corn be lodged and trees blown down though castles topple on their warders heads though palaces and pyramids do slope their heads to their foundations though the treasure of nature's germans tumble altogether even till destruction sicken now this command over the elements does not form at all a prominent feature in the english records of witchcraft a few isolated charges of the kind may be found in fifteen sixty five for instance a witch was burnt who confessed that she had caused all the tempests that had taken place in that year scott too has a few short sentences upon this subject but does not give it the slightest prominence nor in the earlier scotch trials recorded by pitcairn does this charge appear amongst the accusations against the witches it is exceedingly curious to notice the utter harmless nature of the charges brought against the earlier culprits and how as time went on and the panic increased they gradually deepened in colour until no act was too gross too repulsive or too ridiculously impossible to be excluded from the indictment the following quotations from one of the earliest reported trials are given because they illustrate most forcibly the condition of the poor women who were supposed to be witches and the real basis of fact upon which the belief in the crime subsequently built itself bessie dunlop was tried for witchcraft in fifteen seventy six one of the principal accusations against her was that she held intercourse with a devil who appeared to her in the shape of a neighbor of hers one tom reed who had recently died being asked how and where she met tom reed she said as she was gangin betwixt her own house and the yard of moncastle drivin ter kye to the pasture and makin heavy sair duel with herself great and very fast for her cow that was dead her husband and child that were lyin sick in the land deal and she new risen out of kissane the aforesaid tom met her by the way he'll sit her and said good day bessie and she said god speed you goodman sancta marie said he bessie why makes thou sa great dull and sair greeting for ony worldly thing she answered alas have i not great cause to make great dull for a gear is tracket 
and my husband is on the point of dead, and one baby of my own will not live, and myself at any weak point. Have I not good cause then to have an sair heart? But Tom said, Bessie, thou hast crabbed God, and asked something you soul not have done, and therefore I counsel thee to mend to him, for I tell thee thy barn shall die, and the sick cow, or you come home, and thy twa sheep shall die too, but thy husband shall mend, and shall be as hale and fair as ever he was. And then I was something blither, for he told me that my good men would mend. Then Tom Reed went away from me in through the yard of Moncastle, and I thought that he gate in at a narrow hole of the dyke, nor any early man could have gone through, and swore it was something flight. This was the first time that Tom appeared to her. On the third occasion he asked her if she would not throw in him. She said she would throw in all nobody did her good. Then Tom promised her much wealth if she would deny her Christendom. She answered that if she should be riven at horses tireless, she shall never do that, but promised to be leal and true to him in only thing she could do. Whereat he was angry. On the fourth occasion, the poor woman fell further into sin, and accompanied Tom to a fairy meeting. Tom asked her to join the party, but she said she saw no profit to gang that kind of goddess, unless she came to wherefore. Tom offered the old inducement, wealth, but she replied that she dwelt with her awen husband and bareness, and could not leave them. And so Tom began to be very crabbed with her, and said, if so she thought she would get little good of him she was then demanded if she had ever asked any favour of tom for herself or any other person she answered that when sundry persons came to her to seek help for their beast the cow or ewe or for any barn that was ta'en away with an evil blast of wind or elf grip it she gate and spirit at tom what might help them and tom would pull an herb and give her out of his own hand and bear a shear the same with any other kinds of herbs, and open the beastie's mouth and put them in, and the beast wouldn't mend. It seems hardly possible to believe that a story like this, which is half marred by the attempt to partially modernize its simple pathetic language, and which would probably bring a tear to the eye, if not a shilling from the pocket, of the most unsympathetic being of the present day, should be considered sufficient three hundred years ago, to convict the narrator of a crime worthy of death. Yet so it was. This sad picture of the breakdown of a poor woman's intellect in the unequal struggle against poverty and sickness is only made visible to us by the light of the flames that mercifully to her, perhaps, took poor Bessie Dunlop away forever from the sick husband and weakly children and the kai and the humble hovel where they all dwelt together and from the daily heart-rending almost hopeless struggle to obtain enough food to keep life in the bodies of this miserable family the historian who makes it his chief anxiety to record to the minutest and most irrelevant details the deeds noble or ignoble of those who have managed to stamp their names upon the muster-roll of fame turns carelessly or scornfully the page which contains such insignificant matter as this but those who believe that not a worm is cloven in vain, that not a moth with vain desire is shriveled in a fruitless fire, or but subserves another's gain, will hardly feel that poor Bessie's life and death were entirely without their meaning. 
as the trials for witchcraft increase however the details grow more and more revolting and in the year fifteen ninety we find a most extraordinary batch of cases extraordinary for the monstrosity of the charges contained in them and also for the fact that this feature so insisted upon in macbeth the raising of winds and storms stands out in extremely bold relief the explanation of this is as follows in the year fifteen eighty nine king james the sixth brought his bride anne of denmark home to scotland during the voyage an unusually violent storm raged which scattered the vessels composing the royal escort and it would appear caused the destruction of one of them by a marvellous chance the king's ship was driven by a wind which blew directly contrary to that which filled the sails of the other vessels and the king and queen were both placed in extreme jeopardy james who seems to have been as perfectly convinced of the reality of witchcraft as he was of his own infallibility at once came to the conclusion that the storm had been raised by the aid of evil spirits for the express purpose of getting rid of so powerful an enemy of the prince of darkness as the righteous king the result was that a rigorous investigation was made into the whole affair a great number of persons were tried for attempting the king's life by witchcraft and that prince undeterred by the apparent impropriety of being judge in what was in reality his own cause presided at many of the trials condescended to superintend the tortures applied to the accused in order to extort a confession and even went so far in one case as to write a letter to the judges commanding a condemnation under these circumstances considering who the prosecutor was and who the judge and the effectual methods at the service of the court for extorting confessions it is not surprising that the king's surmises were fully justified by the statements of the accused it is impossible to read these without having parts of the witch scenes in macbeth ringing in the ears like an echo john fian a young schoolmaster and leader of the gang or coven as it was called was charged with having caused the leak in the king's ship and with having raised the wind and created a mist for the purpose of hindering his voyage on another occasion he and several other witches entered into a ship and caused it to perish he was also able by witchcraft to open locks he visited churchyards at night and dismembered bodies for his charms the bodies of unbaptized infants being preferred agnes sampson confessed to the king that to compass his death she took a black toad and hung it by the hind legs for three days and collected the venom that fell from it she said that if she could have obtained a piece of linen that the king had worn she could have destroyed his life with this venom causing him such extraordinary pains as if he had been lying upon sharp thorns or endis of needles she went out to sea to a vessel called the grace of god and when she came away the devil raised a wind and the vessel was wrecked she delivered a letter from fian to another witch which was to this effect Yisa warned the rest of the sisters to raise the wind this day at Elwyn Oris to stay the Quinnis coming in Scotland. This is her confession as to the methods adopted for raising the storm. At the time when His Majesty was in Denmark, she, being accompanied by the parties before specially named, took a cat and christened it, and afterwards bound to each part of that cat the chiefest parts of a dead man and the several joints of his body 
and that in the night following the said cat was conveyed into the midst of the sea by all these witches sailing in their riddles or sieves as is aforesaid and so left the said cat right before the town of leith in scotland this done there did arise such a tempest in the sea as a greater hath not been seen which tempest was the cause of the perishing of a vessel coming over from the town of brunt island to the town of leith again it is confessed that the said christened cat was the cause that the king's majesty's ship at his coming forth of denmark had a contrary wind to the rest of his ships it is worth a note that this art of going to sea in sieves which shakespeare has referred to in his drama seems to have been peculiar to this set of witches english witches had the reputation of being able to go upon the water in egg-shells and cockle-shells but seem never to have detected any peculiar advantages in the sieve not so these scotch witches agnes told the king that she with a great many other witches to the number of two hundredth all together went to sea each one in a riddle or sieve and went into the same very substantially with flagons of wine making merry and drinking by the way in the same riddles or sieves to the kirk of north barrack in lothian and that after they landed they took hands on the land and danced a reel or short dance they then opened the graves and took the fingers toes and knees of the bodies to make charms it can be easily understood that these trials created an intense excitement in scotland the result was that a tract was printed containing a full account of all the principal incidents and the fact that this pamphlet was reprinted once if not twice in london shows that interest in the affair spread south of the border and this is confirmed by the publisher's prefatorial apology in which he states that the pamphlet was printed to prevent the public from being imposed upon by unauthorized and extravagant statements of what had taken place under ordinary circumstances events of this nature would form a nine days wonder and then die a natural death but in this particular case the public interest continued for an abnormal time for eight years subsequent to the date of the trials james published his demonology a work founded to a great extent upon his experiences at the trials of fifteen ninety this was a sign to both england and scotland that the subject of witchcraft was still of engrossing interest to him and as he was then the fully recognized heir apparent to the english crown the publication of such a work would not fail to induce a great amount of attention to the subject dealt with in sixteen o three he ascended the english throne his first parliament met on the nineteenth of march sixteen o four and on the twenty seventh of the same month a bill was brought into the house of lords dealing with the question of witchcraft it was referred to a committee of which twelve bishops were members and this committee after much debating came to the conclusion that the bill was imperfect in consequence of this a fresh one was drawn and by the ninth of june a statute had passed both houses of parliament which enacted among other things that if any person shall practise or exercise any invocation or conjuration of any evil or wicked spirit or shall consult with entertain feed or reward any evil and wicked spirit or take up any dead man woman or child out of his her or their grave or the skin bone or any other part of any dead person to be employed or used in any manner of witchcraft 
or shall practice any witchcraft whereby any person shall be killed wasted pined or lamed in his or her body or any part thereof such offenders shall suffer the pains of death as felons without benefit of clergy or sanctuary hutchinson in his essay on witchcraft published in seventeen twenty declares that this statute was framed expressly to meet the offences exposed by the trials of fifteen ninety ninety one but although this cannot be conclusively proved yet it is not at all improbable that the hurry with which the statute was passed into law immediately upon the accession of james would recall to the public mind the interest he had taken in those trials in particular and the subject in general and that shakespeare producing as nearly all the critics agree his tragedy at about this date should draw upon his memory for the half-forgotten details of those trials and thus embody in macbeth the allusions to them that have been pointed out much less accurately than he did in the case of the babington affair because the facts had been far less carefully recorded and the time at which his attention had been called to them far more remote there is one other mode of temptation which was adopted by the evil spirits implicated to a great extent with the traditions of witchcraft but nevertheless more suitably handled as a separate subject which is of so gross and revolting a nature that it should willingly be passed over in silence were it not for the fact that the belief in it was as scott says so strongly and universally received in the times of elizabeth and james from the very earliest period of the christian era the affection of one sex for the other was considered to be under the special control of the devil marriage was to be tolerated but celibacy was the state most conducive to the near intercourse with heaven that was so dearly sought after this opinion was doubtless generated by the tendency of the early christian leaders to hold up the events of the life rather than the teachings of the sacred founder of the sect as the one rule of conduct to be received by his followers to have been the recipients of the stigmata was a far greater evidence of holiness and favor with heaven than the quiet and unnoted daily practice of those virtues upon which christ pronounced his blessing and in less improbable matters they did not scruple in their enthusiasm to attempt to establish a rule of life in direct contradiction to the laws of that universe of which they professed to believe him to be the creator the futile attempt to imitate his immaculate purity blinded their eyes to the fact that he never taught or encouraged celibacy among his followers and this gradually led them to the strange conclusion that the passion which sublimed and brought under control is the source of man's noblest and holiest feelings was a prompting proceeding from the author of all evil imbued with this idea religious enthusiasts of both sexes immured themselves in convents took oaths of perpetual celibacy and even in certain isolated cases sought to compromise with heaven and baffle the tempter by rendering a fall impossible forgetting that the victory over sin does not consist in immunity from temptation but being tempted not to fall but no convent walls are so strong as to shut great nature out and even within these sacred precincts the ascetics found that they were not free from the temptations of their arch-enemy in consequence of this a belief sprang up and spread from its original source into the outer world in a class of devils called incubi and succubi 
who roamed the earth with no other object than to tempt people to abandon their purity of life the cases of assault by incubi were much more frequent than those by succubi just as women were much more affected by the dancing manias in the fifteenth century than men the reason perhaps being that they are much less capable of resisting physical privation but according to the belief of the middle ages there was no generic difference between the incubus and succubus here was a belief that when the witch fury sprang up attached itself as a matter of course as the phase of the crime and it was an almost universal charge against the accused that they offended in this manner with their familiars and hundreds of poor creatures suffered death upon such an indictment more details will be found in the authorities upon this unpleasant subject this intercourse did not as a rule result in offspring but this was not universally the case all badly deformed or monstrous children were suspected of having had such an undesirable parentage and there was a great tendency to believe that they ought to be destroyed luther was a decided advocate of this course deeming the destruction of a life far preferable to the chance of having a devil in the family in drayton's poem the moon calf one of the gossips present at the birth of the calf suggests that it ought to be buried alive as a monster caliban is a moon calf and his origin is distinctly traced to a source of this description it is perfectly clear what was the one thing that the foul witch sycorax did which prevented her life from being taken and it would appear from this that the inhabitants of argier were far more merciful in this respect than their european neighbours such a charge would have sent any woman to the stake in scotland without the slightest hope of mercy and the usual plea for respite would only have been an additional reason for hastening the execution of the sentence in the preceding pages an endeavour has been made to delineate the most prominent features of a belief which the great reformation was destined first to foster into unnatural proportions and vitality and in the end to destroy up to the period of the reformation the creed of the nation had been practically uniform and one set of dogmas was unhesitatingly accepted by the people as infallible and therefore hardly demanding critical consideration the great upheaval of the sixteenth century rent this quiescent uniformity into shreds doctrines until then considered as indisputable were brought within the pale of discussion and hence there was a great diversity of opinion not only between the supporters of the old and of the new faith but between the reformers themselves this was conspicuously the case with regard to the belief in the devils and their works the more timid of the reformers clung in a great measure to the catholic opinions a small band under the influence possibly of that knight errant of freedom of thought giordano bruno who exercised some considerable influence during his visit to england by means of his oxford lectures and disputations entirely denied the existence of evil spirits but the great majority gave in their adherence to a creed that was the mean between the doctrines of the old faith and the new scepticism their strong common sense compelled them to reject the puerilities advanced as serious evidence by the catholic church but they cast aside with equal vehemence and more horror the doctrines of the bruno school that there are devils says bullinger reduced apparently from argument to invective 
the sadducees in times past denied and at this day also some scarce religious nay rather epicures deny the same who unless they repent shall one day feel to their exceeding great pain and smart both that there are devils and that they are the tormentors and executioners of all wicked men and epicures it must be remembered too that the emancipation from medievalism was a very gradual process not as we are too prone to think it a revolution suddenly and completely effected it was an evolution not an explosion there is found in consequence a great divergence of opinion not only between the earliest and the later reformers but between the statements of the same man at different periods of his career tyndall for instance seems to have believed in the actual possession of the human body by devils and this appears to have been the opinion of the majority at the beginning of the reformation for the first prayer-book of edward the sixth contained the catholic form of exorcism for driving devils out of children which was expunged upon revision the doctrine of obsession having in the meantime triumphed over the older belief it is necessary to bear these facts in mind whilst considering any attempt to depict the general bearings of a belief such as that in evil spirits for many irreconcilable statements are to be found among the authorities and it is the duty of the writer to sift out and describe those views which predominated and these must not be supposed to be proved inaccurate because a chance quotation can be produced in contradiction end of section nine